but it's curiosity as to where we are, what we are. Existence, the physical universe, is basically playful. Welcome to the Curious Humans podcast. I'm your host, Johnny Miller. Hello, Curious Humans. I know it's been a hot minute since the previous podcast episode with Eric Godsey, but I'm getting back on track and really excited to bring you some juicy new episodes in the coming weeks. Starting with this episode with Dr. Christian Bush. Christian wears many hats. He directs the CGA Global Economy Program at NYU. He teaches purpose-driven entrepreneurship at LSE. And he has a host of pretty impressive accolades to his name. Uh, He's one of the Davos 50, he's an RSA fellow, and he frequently speaks at the World Economic Forum. And more importantly, he is the author of a fascinating new book called The Serendipity Mindset. And that's what we, we really dive into in this conversation. We start with what he learned from his near-death car accident at 17 and his journey from being an economics lecturer to writing this book about cultivating smart luck and some tangible and pretty practical suggestions for building what he calls the muscle of serendipity in your own life. So it's a really freaking good episode and I hope you'll be left with a new lens through which to view your day-to-day life. All right, please sit back and enjoy this veritable feast of a conversation with Dr. Christian Bush. Okay, welcome, Christian. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's it's lovely to have you here, and I've been looking forward to this for a while now. Um, How are you feeling in this moment in three words? Covidistically hopeful. (laughs) Excellent, excellent. Um, So these conversations are in themselves an exercise in serendipity. And I think I have a sense of the direction that I'd like to take us in. But for me, the, the task is really one of staying completely open to what wants to emerge in the moment. And as a jumping off point, I'd like to start with a question that has become something of a ritual for um, this podcast. And the question is, were you exceptionally curious as a child? And if so, could you tell me a story about something you were curious about? That's a great question, because I feel my curiosity probably has led me quite a few times into areas that, especially as a kid, were probably the areas that I um, was... uh, you know, testing boundaries. Um, and, you know, I, I remember times where, for example, I mean, I would be the kind of person, you know, who would, um, as a kind of six, seven-year-old, um, leave the house, walk around, and just try to figure out, like, you know, what is around, who's around. And then, um, you know, my, my parents would try to get all the neighbors to somehow figure out where I am. And then somehow in the evening, I would always come back. But it's kind of this, I think, I think it was both the mixture between curiosity and at the same time, somehow trying to f- figure out what is what is what is what is this all about and so almost like I think that came later then but almost I think there's always been a deep sense for a kind of meaning and and trying to figure out what is the meaning of of everything Mm. yeah I I love that and as a follow-up did you have any favorite books or stories growing up that come to mind and 
Is there some way that the narrative of the book might be connected to your current life's purpose? Yeah, I mean, one book that I discovered in my kind of late teens when I had an experience that, you know, made me realize how quickly life can be over is now a book that I have next to my bed. Um, it's Viktor Frankl's Search for Meaning. And it's, it's all about essentially the question of how do we find meaning in any kind of situation? And how do we, I mean, Viktor Frankl, he went through an extremely, probably the toughest period that, that one can ever go to. He was in a concentration camp and he kind of still tried to figure out how do I, how do I find a way that I, you know, can still talk with fellow prisoners to make them feel better so that, that, that he felt there's some kind of purpose in, in him being there or um, that there's some kind of way of how he, he can find, you know, some kind of meaning in, 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 in those kind of um, heavy situations. And I, I've always found that extremely inspiring, especially when thinking about, um, you know, periods like at the moment where there, there is, you know, collectively speaking, there's so much kind of heaviness in there and, and there's so much kind of, you know, death, despair, there's, 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 there's things that are, that are extremely heavy. And I think here in New York, you know, we, we lost some people um, to COVID. Um, I had COVID myself, but, you know, in a way also that kind of period again was to me a reminder of, okay, like re-anchoring in, you know, what is life really about? And I think I've mm. seen that with a lot of others as well, who kind of went with me almost through that kind of collective near-death experience of really saying, okay, hey, um, you know, maybe this, this can be, a, a way of how this crisis also helps us to to help shift kind of the things that have to shift both on the individual level you know how people we are in their lives at the moment but also um, on the systems level of how we can really shape things at the moment because you know there's so much that's broken but um also so much that that can be you know fixed at this moment in time mm, wow that's that's really well said and yeah that that book is also on on my bookshelf and I remember the, the, I think there's a quote from it where he says, in between stimulus and response, there is a space. And in that space is our freedom. And it is such a, it is such a perspective inducing book to, to read. And um, in, in some ways, this, this ties back to, I, I just rewatched your TEDx talk from 2011, which when I saw it at the time was profoundly powerful to me. And you kind of shared your story about the, the car crash that you experienced and how you realized that, as you just shared, that death is in some ways life's greatest motivator and helps us to reflect on, on what really matters. Um, and I can imagine that, you know, having COVID in recent weeks would, would also create a similar kind, of, um, similar kind of opportunity for reflection. Could you, could you briefly share what happened to you back then in your teenage years and how you feel like that experience impacted the trajectory of your life. Yeah, and, and it's interesting, that quote that you mentioned is, is one of my absolute favorites in terms of that idea that, you know, whenever the unexpected happens, we can either let it take over or we can somehow try to still frame it in a way that, that, that gives us some kind of agency. And I feel um, that is exactly what um, is, is at the core of, of a lot of the serendipity thinking as well to say, um, at the end of the day, it always looks to, like it depends on how we react to a situation, but also when we look at it and how we look at it. And I, I, I remember to, to your point, I mean, when I was a, a teenager, you know, uh, I used to be this kind of extremely rebellious, um, you know, I wanted to, to test boundaries. I, 
I had to repeat a year in high school. I was thrown out of school at some point. Like I was, I was the kind of kid, I mean, I still have so much respect now for my parents of how they went through all of that without going completely um, uh, bananas. But, but it was, it was, uh, it, it was, a, it was a, it was a very interesting period in terms of really kind of just being focused on what I really enjoyed doing. Um, and then I had that kind of um, um, car crash and, um, I, you know, it, I think the one thing that it did was that it made me think about a lot of things I would usually not have thought about, especially at that age, which was, you know, um, like, was this all worth it? Um, did I do anything like, like that, that felt it had some kind of meaning and, and so on? And at that point, I had to just, you know, be truthful to myself and say, mm. I probably didn't. Um, and so it put me on this intense search for meaning where I think Viktor Frankl has been a great guide in terms of really trying to figure out like what are um, communities, companies, organizations, uh, or generally kind of, you know, groups or teams that I can be part of where in a way, if that would happen again, if I would ever run in front of a car again, this time it would have been worth it. And I think that's kind of, in a way, that urgency that I've felt since then, um, I think that's 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 kind of when I think about the intensity, like nowadays I have, when I work on projects that I'm very excited about, I have a lot of intensity about them. I have a lot of kind of, I mean, I, I, I'm not sure passion is the right word, but I feel like, okay, this is really what feels is the right thing to build and, mm. and, and to do. And, and I think a lot of that kind of intensity comes from that feeling of urgency of knowing that, you know, like we only do have a limited amount of time on this earth. And, mm. and I think there are moments, and we talked earlier about your wonderful, uh, kind of meditation practices and 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 you know i've always i've always um had this kind of inner struggle between on one hand wanting this kind of um deep kind of contentness that comes from really anchoring right and and so for example um i try to meditate a lot i try to um to 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 have a couple of practices that make me feel like in this moment like i feel i i don't want this moment to end because it is such a beautiful moment and then at the same time, I also know that a lot of the, the things I want to do in the world are driven by a certain discomfort of, 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 of things that I feel not really good about or that, that I feel some sort of pain about, you know, mm. being that inequalities, being that people who are treated not that well, being that particular individual issues that I have, whatever it is, and being that fears, being that, you know, all these kind of different things that could be there. And so I've always been like, I've always found that fascinating, this kind of dynamic almost like of how can you have a base level of happiness slash contentness. And then at mm. the same time, keep a little bit of that discomfort and allow for this discomfort. And I think mm. that is what I find so fascinating about serendipity that I feel serendipity is almost saying uncertainty can enhance our anxiety. And it certainly does a lot of times, but also if we see every moment that is unexpected as something that we can potentially shape and that we can potentially, you know, like create meaning out, then mm. like there's really this kind of joyful enthusiasm for, for life that comes back. And so I feel there's, there's that kind mm. of impetus at the moment. Mm. I love that. Um, and it, it makes me think of the, the, the tension that I, I feel myself between kind of noble aspiration and ambition. And I think that for me, where I get into trouble is where I start to, to kind of grasp hold of the outcomes as opposed to, try and create noble intentions and not be too attached to to what emerges and there's there's a powerful um there's a powerful tibetan uh, meditation practice that is is basically a meditation on death and this has been really really powerful for me as well in that i feel like so many of us intellectually 
you know, obviously know that at some day we're going to die, but it's very hard for that to really sink in on a kind of deep, visceral, like somatic level. And I think having practices um, and, and not just kind of waiting for like the car crash experiences or, or the COVIDs to hit us, but having regular check-ins with ourselves that remind us of that kind of primal urgency that it seems like has kind of driven a lot of what you've what you've done in the world and a lot of uh, what you've managed to create. And that's, you know, it's, it's a fascinating point also because, so one of the projects we've been doing recently um, with, with a couple of, of people who are running companies was around the question of what is it that makes some people have more serendipity happen than others? And, and one of the kind of key themes that came from it was really that they, in a way, allowed for exactly uh, what you just mentioned. They say, hey, look, I have a certain intention or a certain sense of direction, right? So something that, that's out there that, that orients a little bit of where I'm going but also then there's a certain humility of, and almost like of the, not only the fragility of life, but also the kind of, that, that most, or a lot of things that really shape life are coming out of the unexpected. And, and, mm. and that kind of, in a way, allowing for both, like this idea of not having this illusion of control that I have exactly this plan and this has to exactly work. And then when I'm 40, I do exactly this. And when I'm 50, I do exactly this. I've rarely seen someone in today's world where this would work out. But I've seen a lot of people saying, I have the intention or maybe ambition or, or kind of the broader idea of that I want to, you know, um, help X, Y, Z or want to do X, Y, Z or whatever it is. And then however it plays out, that, that, then, that then, then happens. And I feel like by, by having this kind of almost, I don't know if humility is the right word, but having this kind of appreciation that there's only so much we can plan because life happens and because, mm -hmm. I mean, death is obviously the most radical form of something happening. But, you know, I mean, if we think about the day-to-day -day life, right? Like, like there's always something in the day that is a little bit unexpected, even if we don't see it or we don't want to see it, but there's always something that's maybe a little bit out of plan, right? Mm. Being that missing the bus or, you know, there's, but, but again, once we see like all of this as not destroying all of our plans and everything kind of being scrambling now, but once we see this as that every missed train is an opportunity of like, you know, creating an alternative like conversation with someone, um, whatever it is, um, then it's, it's, it's again this kind of idea that it is a real motivator that everything that doesn't work out actually can still open up so many other doors. And I feel to me this has, you know, it, it has given me a huge kind of, um, Victor Frankl would probably call it like a rational optimism in terms of, you know, um, like this idea that, of course, we don't want to be naively optimistic about the world. There are so many things that are going wrong and that we have to be part of fixing. And at the same time, there's so many things that we can proactively in the moment already um, fix just by essentially reframing the situation. And, and so I feel like um, that's, that's been giving me a lot of hope on that journey. Mm, yeah, I, I love that. And certainly in my own life, things that on the surface initially appear to be incredibly negative often in hindsight turn out to be incredibly positive events, but it, it takes some trust and faith for the larger narrative to, to appear. Um, so I'm, I'm curious, what were some of the, the key experiences that led you with a background as an economist and a social entrepreneur to, to undertake this kind of crazy task of, of writing a book on serendipity? That's a great question, especially because, I mean, I remember the early conversations in academia, which were essentially serendipity is something that is spiritual, that shouldn't be something that should be 
you know, scientifically anchored and X, Y, Z. And, mm-hmm. and it's interesting because I, I, you know, it, like the journey um, has been a lot around that. I mean, the, you know, when we first connected in, in the context that was in the context of, of, of a community um, we, we set up at that point. Right. And, and it was really um, in that period where, um, you know, we would host dinners and we would host events and it was just crazy how often people would say like, Oh my God, such a coincidence. Oh my God, such a coincidence. Oh my God, such a coincidence. And it like, I got really fascinated by this question of how did this become a serendipity accelerator? How, you know, the word serendipity, I didn't even know it before, but like when people were say, like talking about coincidence all the time, they were talking about, Oh my God, serendipity is happening here all the time. Um, I got really excited about it. And so um, that kind of first was like this practical interest of just seeing the potentiality in it, right? For communities, for for individuals, like how much joy, how much meaning it gave people to have that. Mm. Um, but then like over time, I think, um, you know, I, I started kind of um, when we did the whole, like, you know, things around networks, communities and so on. Um, my my inner kind of voice was always trying to figure out, okay, what is what does impact really mean? And what is it really, you know, again, back to the search for meaning thing, like what is it really that's, that, that, that we that, that, that makes sense and so on and so it led me a little bit into that kind of academia which in a way is the the uh, you know um, the, the the quintessence of, 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 of allowing yourself curiosity to or, or curiosity to guide you mm. um, and, and, and and you know first I thought it would be completely unrelated that I would do some work around how do we create social impact how do we develop networks for impact and so on but then serendipity again popped up everywhere like I would study social entrepreneurs in the Cape Flats and Cape Town. I would look at entrepreneurs in Kenya. I would look at a company in China. And like everywhere I looked, like the most successful, joyful, purpose-driven people always somehow intuitively seem to cultivate serendipity. Mm. And so I got really excited about this thing that, hey, there seems to be a pattern behind this. Nobody can tell me that there is no pattern behind this. And this is not just anecdotes, but actually there seems to be something behind it. Mm. And so the last three years now, um, I focused a lot on trying to understand, okay, from all the research we've been doing over the last decade, from all the work we've been doing over the last decade, um, what are the kind of patterns that are coming out in terms of how we can really cultivate serendipity? And what can we learn from like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of papers in, you know, the, the kind of in chemistry, molecular chemistry, in physics, in management and other areas that in a way all say a very similar thing, which is that if you put some things in motion and if you allow some dots or some things kind of to to move around there is the potentiality of them connecting and there's the potentiality of that kind of boom happening that spark happening that serendipity is all about and so mm. um it was really the kind of intention with with that with that book also to say let's bring this all together let's develop a science-based framework that allows us to understand serendipity but also let's understand what are these practices that people use in the day-to-day and what are the exercises that we can that we can train ourselves our, our serendipity muscle for Mm. Wow. And I've just, I've just finished reading the book myself. And as you say, I, I love that it's a very scientific and, and research-backed approach into something that I would have previously considered to be you know, almost magic. And it's almost, it's almost like you ask the question, how could I bring more magic into my life? And part of what I really appreciated about it is, is in part, it's kind of like a case for being more deeply curious about the world. And reading this, I'd imagine that many adults would would hopefully be encouraged to to kind of challenge their default models of the world and to take their curiosity more seriously. So so just congratulations for for creating this and putting this out into the world. And 
maybe as a starting point, um, could you could you define the three types of serendipity and and what you mean by cultivating smart luck? Yeah, I mean the cultivating smart luck to me is really at the core of it because it's in a way it's very different from that blind luck, right? From that kind of luck that just happens to us, like being born into a family or something, right? That's like I mean, you know, that's, you can't work for that. It happens or it doesn't happen. Um, but smart luck and like, like serendipity essentially is about saying, I, I, I see something in the unexpected and then I connect the dots. I do something with it. So if you take an example, right? I think the, the, um, one of my favorite examples is, is a, a company in China. Um, um, you know, it's a, they, they do washing machines, refrigerators and, and things like this. And at some point, um, farmers told them, hey, look, your washing machine always breaks down when we're trying to wash our potatoes here. And, you know, that's unexpected that, like, someone tells you uh, with a washing machine they're washing their potatoes, right? Like, and, and what would we usually do when we have that kind of unexpected um, trigger or that unexpected uh, thing happening? We'll probably say, well, don't wash your potatoes in this machine. It's not made <laughs> for potatoes. Uh, they did exactly the opposite. They said, well, you know what? Like, Yes, this is unexpected, but also we know that there's a lot of farmers out there who have the problem of having to wash their potatoes. Mm -hmm. So why don't we make it a potato washing machine? And that's how the potato washing machine emerged, right? And so the potato washing machine, people would now say, oh, it was like a, a coincidence that this farmer or this data came in at this point in X, Y, Z. Yeah, but you know what? They did something with it. They connected their dots. And, you know, that's with, with all these things in history. Like if you think, maybe take take an example that everyone might be might know, which is... Um, you know, when, when researchers a couple of years ago injected people or, or gave people a medication um, against angina and, uh, you know, they were trying to test if it, if it helps people or not. And they realized that in the male participants' trousers, there was some kind of movement happening. Mm. And so, you know, um, again, that's unexpected and, and we might consider it as embarrassing. Oh, my God. Like, you know, they, they get an erection. Right. Mm. And so what we would usually do is obviously we would either try to ignore it. Or we would say we would not, maybe we would not see it, right? I mean, who knows? Or we would say to quote unquote find a better medication that doesn't have that quote unquote side effect, right? Mm -hmm. And so, um, but they did the opposite. They said, okay, this is unexpected, but we also know that a lot of men have the problem in that department. And so, essentially, that's how they came up with the Viagra, right? Again, they they saw something unexpected. They saw the serendipity trigger, but also they connected the dots. And so, it's really these kind of steps of saying. There is something unexpected happening. It could be an encounter with someone, a conversation. It could be seeing something in a magazine. But at the same time, then, it's also about saying, okay, we have to do something with it. We have to relate it to something, but then also have the tenacity to actually follow through. And I think these kind of three steps then are really important because um, if you look at the history of, you know, there's a lot of kind of work, for example, around these kind of counterfactual things where it's about saying, you know, people who saw the same thing, like if we both see that if we inject the rabbit and the rabbit, like the ears of a rabbit flop, we both see that. Um, but if only one of us follows through with it and says, okay, great, like maybe that's about the bloodstream. Oh, maybe we can do something for that, you know, against arthritis because it, it seems to be a great like medication that could help in that department X, Y, Z. Then that's how, 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 how in history, for example, one medication would come about versus the other one not. So in a way, we can also, that's how we can know that serendipity happens versus not, by, by comparing the counterfactuals and saying, this is what happened and this is, this is what didn't happen because we weren't tenacious about um, following through with it. Mm, those, are, those are great stories. And it brings to mind something that you wrote about, I think it was 
um, creating more meaningful accidents and also making more accidents meaningful. And so with, with that in mind, what, what might be some of the ways for listeners to create that, create that fertile soil for serendipity and for these more meaningful accidents to appear? Yeah, I mean, that's, I'm glad you picked up on that, on that, um, on that sentence, because that's really, I feel what's at the core of it, that there's these two things, the one being that we can create meaningful accidents, and the second one being, even if there's an accident that we didn't want, right, like in the case of Viagra, we can still make it meaningful. And so mm -hmm. it's, it's almost like we can, we can play with those different, um, um, we can either play with a, with a dot that, that's not yet there, or with actually doing something with a dot that just, just came there. And so um, one example that, I, that I'm a big fan of, actually, you might know him um, in London, uh, Oli Barrett, who's, mm. who's an entrepreneur, um, and, yep. and he does something, you know, if you would ask him, so, so Oli, what are you doing? Uh, you know, this dreaded question at a conference, right, where everyone's like, what do you do? And, um, you know, usually you might just say something like, oh, yeah, I, I run an education company, or um, I build a coffee machine, whatever it is, right? Um, Oli, what Oli does is he says, well... You know, I, I'm excited about education, um, but I recently started exploring philosophy. But what I'm really curious about is at the moment uh, how uh, in the Antarctica ships fly or whatever it is, right? And the, the point is that now what he does is he gives us three potential hooks where you could be now, oh, my God, like I just started looking into how ships fly in the Antarctic. Or, I, oh, my God, such a coincidence. I just started reading into philosophy and I wanted to set up a club around it. Or, oh, my God, such a coincidence, X, Y, Z. The point is that Oli gave us three potential dots, three potential things we can work with and somehow find some kind of unexpected overlap. If he only said one thing, then, then we wouldn't have that. So that's really about this kind of first piece around how we can create meaningful accidents by seeding more of these potential dots or more of these potential hooks. And there's a lot of ways we can do that. I mean, another way in, in, in that regard that I've done, especially with, um, with, uh, with, with younger uh, people in, in lower income contexts who, you know, if they are, um, a lot of times they might not have access to a lot of people um, and they, they might not have the exposure they need. And, you know, if someone just came out of prison or something, there's just not that much that, that, that can be done in terms of opportunity. Mm. But actually, um, one, one, one thing there to, to, to put out potential hooks is um, to, they, they would go to public events. Like, let's say, I don't know, if the LSE or the RSA or something does a public event. And then, you know, there's this star speaker and there's 500 people in the audience. And the brief then is, be the first one who asks the question and stand up in a way that they can't ignore you, right? So not too much, but like stand up very energetically so that they, when they ask, okay, who has questions, like mm. you, you essentially, you will be seen. And then essentially make the question, of course, around the speaker, right? So it's essentially, thank you so much for this inspiring speech. It was like, so like interesting, blah, blah. And then bring in this one sentence that's the hook, which says something along the lines of, as someone who just went through XYZ, XYZ, so something that, that could potentially make people interested. Mm. And, and then again, I, I was interested in, in your advice on how you would go about this. Now, the point here is that it's not about the question to the speaker. What always happens afterwards is there's five or six people out of the audience who would come to the person afterwards saying, oh my God, such a coincidence, you said that my brother just went through this period. Or such a coincidence, you know, my friend just told me about X, Y, Z. The point is that now you just had an audience of 500 people who all somehow can potentially respond to this one or two sentences about what period you just went through in whichever way you felt comfortable sharing. And so it's, it's about this kind of like also 
like um, how we can develop exposure for people who might not have that exposure usually if it's built in in a way that, that doesn't make it about them, but actually um, in a way um, opens up that, that or casts that net a bit broader. Um, I think on the other hand, like in terms of how we can, and, and there's a lot of these kind of things, right? How we can set serendipity bombs and so on and so on. Um, but for the, you know, for the, um, how do you call it? For the, for the, uh, for the, well, that's probably the wrong term, but for the sanity of, of, of everyone involved, I don't, I, I probably shouldn't, shouldn't go on for too long. But um, the, the, the second part is really around how do we make accidents more meaningful? Because that's really something that um, um, I found interesting, especially in regard to what we talked about earlier, right? Like how often there is this kind of, uh, you know, something unexpected, like an unexpected crisis or something else mm -hmm. that really shapes a lot of things. And, 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 and it also brings the real kind of, like, it brings out character or it doesn't, right? And, and, mm. and uh, if you look at, like, Best Buy, for example, when Hurricane Maria happened in, in Puerto Rico, um, you know, and, and, like, they had to close their shops and everything else. And, you know, it was costly for them to hire private planes to fly out their people. But they were like, look, like, our values are that we are actually standing with our people, that we want to protect our employees' interests, whatever it is. And so they did that. And for them, then, what turned out to be, you know, a tough sell towards investors turned out to be the most amazing thing that could have happened for them to essentially show their real values and to show what they really stand for. And afterwards, you know, employee productivity would go up, customer loyalty would go up and so on. And of course, this was a completely unexpected event, but they made it meaningful by relating it to their values and saying, okay, by doing this, we show who we really are. And mm. it feels right at this point in time, but usually always in most of the work that I am aware of, it also shows that over time then it usually has long-term kind of positive um, outcomes for, for, for doing that. So it's, it's really those kind of um, layers there as well. Mm. Wow, this is, this is fascinating. And on your, on your first point, um, I was just reflecting on, on starting a podcast is, is also has for me felt like a serendipity bomb in that you're kind of having an excuse to, to have interesting conversations and reaching people who otherwise probably wouldn't know what you're up to in the world. And um, yeah, that was just a little reflection on, on one of the many reasons that I've enjoyed having a podcast over the years. And the, the other thing that I really wanted to talk about was um, you shared a, a quote from Socrates that I, I wrote down in my journal. And it was that he said he had nothing to teach and that he was only asking questions. And could you, could you speak to some of the types of questions that Socrates would ask? And, and also perhaps why, and we, and we touched on this before, before jumping on, but why do you think we don't take the art of asking good questions very seriously? Yeah, it's, it's a great point because I feel, you know, it's, it's when we think about things like how we give advice to people or, you know, when I'm mentoring someone, you know, a lot of times we we give answers to questions in, in, in our own image, right? So in a way, what worked for us, but how do we know if it works for someone else? And a lot of times, actually, the answer is in the person, right? It's, it's because they know their context best. They know best, like, what's, like how complex their lives are in X, Y, Z. And one thing I found um, fascinating about um, the whole kind of Socrates, uh, Socrates dialogue and, 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 and related uh, things, and, and a lot of the kind of things that came out of it was, that essentially questions like the basic assumptions, right? It essentially says like, why would you assume that X, Y, Z is happening? If you ask me a question, if you ask me, uh, Christian, um, should I build this podcast um, to be, 
in Chinese as well. Um, my first point shouldn't be, yeah, no, I've, I've worked a lot in China. I can tell you it's a great market. But my first question could, could perhaps rather be like, why would you want to do this? Like, what is it behind it that drives you? Um, why would you want to do these kind of things? And so essentially first trying to understand like what is actually the, the, the what is what is it behind that that is that is that is the really important thing because then you might say something like yeah you know like there's um, there, there's a couple of people in China I've always admired and I always wanted to communicate with them and this is an excuse to do that right um, now if you had that and I like that by the way what you said earlier about the podcast being a great example of an excuse for connecting with people right because if this is one of the main motivations my advice would have been completely wrong if I would have had the assumption that. It's just about like selling like ideas to a lot of people. Maybe it was just about connecting with three people deeply. And if you do that in Chinese, you have the excuse to connect with them, whatever it is. Point being, long story short, that like it's really, I found it fascinating that once going away from this idea that we know a lot. And I think, you know, I'm in a profession as a, as a quote unquote professor, like you, you have to portray that you know a lot of things in XYZ. But one of my, one of the things that I've realized in life is that most people are just really winging it. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and at the end of the day, you know, like, yes, like we know about some areas, but we also don't know about a lot of other areas. And if we pretend that we know, and that is kind of how we shape our advice with the limited knowledge we have, a lot of times it's actually really bad advice. And so um, I've, I've just really learned that if, if we ask questions and go deeper in the kind of more Socrates, Socrates kind of um, 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 uh, tradition, what it allows us to do is to 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 question our both of our assumptions and to to really kind of um, go much deeper into into what it's really about. And if you apply that to to entrepreneurship or business or others, I mean, there's there's all these different approaches, right? For example, the five why approach, where if you're if you let's say you get a, a briefing about a product and and um, you give X Y Z brief and you ask why a couple of times. Um, you might see that you might need a completely different product for for the same kind of uh, for the same kind of problem that you're doing. So, long story short, it's really I've I've seen it work in a lot of different contexts to um, try to have the beginner's mind and to really say at the end of the day, we know that we know a couple of things, but we also know that we don't know most things, and that um, most of the knowledge is usually in other people. And if we bring that knowledge out, um, it's more fun for everyone, but also it's probably more helpful for everyone. Yeah, that's it's such a profound idea that almost the, the more that we learn and the more we know, the more we realize that we, we don't know. It's like we're expanding our concentric circles of ignorance the more that we, we walk through the world. And I certainly feel like in, in my own life, the biggest barriers to serendipity, I think, have been the preconceptions of the world and the, you know, the monumental number of biases that I've unconsciously held and that direct my thinking um and this this reminded me of one of the barriers that you referenced was this belief around being lucky and i'd love for you to speak to the study that you you mentioned by professor wiseman and what he what he discovered yeah absolutely and it's it's i I like that a lot i mean especially that kind of small experiment he did because it's it's really it's something yeah I've witnessed a lot um, in, in different contexts, but that kind of particular experiment where he essentially said, hey, look, um, you know, let's take one person who self-identifies as very lucky and one person who self-identifies as extremely unlucky. So, you know, bad things always happen to me. Life is bad, like all these kind of things. And essentially 
you know, give them exactly the same situation and just see what happens. And so essentially what he tells them is, hey, look, walk down the street, uh, go into the coffee shop, sit next to the counter, get your coffee and, and that's it. Like that's your day and then I'll interview you at some point. Um, but you know, for now, just sit down there and, and be there. Now, the, 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 what he doesn't tell them is um, that there's a five pound note in front of the, the door of the coffee shop, that there's a lot of hidden cameras um, outside and, and inside the coffee shop. And that next to the, the one chair that's free next to the counter um, is next to this extremely wealthy, wonderful businessman who can make big dreams happen. And now the, the lucky person um, or the, the person who self-identifies as very lucky goes down the street, uh, goes into, uh, sees the five pound note, picks it up, goes into the coffee shop, orders the coffee, sits next to the businessman, has a nice conversation, they exchange business cards. We don't know if there's uh, an opportunity coming out of it, but of course it wouldn't be unexpected. Now, the unlucky person walks down the street, steps over the five pound note, goes inside the shop, orders the coffee, sits next to the businessman, the other person's left, uh, sits next to the businessman, ignores the businessman, and that's it. Now, later, like, Wiseman asked them, so, so how was your day? And, you know, the lucky person says, well, it was amazing. You know, I found money in the street. I made a new friend. And, you know, we don't know if there's an opportunity coming out of it, but it wouldn't be unexpected. Mm. The unlucky person just says, well, nothing really happened. And I've seen that so much in terms of, you know, when you look at couples, for example, who meet the same people, mm. they have exactly the same situations, but one of them just seems a little bit luckier than the other. And so it's really about like both the kind of, and that's what I, what, what I really like about the, especially the title and the, the spirit of your podcast, right? The kind of idea of, it is really kind of that like open mind and that kind of curiosity and that kind of like being open to the world and, and really kind of seeing every situation as something that, you know, the, the unlucky person might think, oh, it's just about that I sit there to wait for someone. So I have this plan and this is the only thing I want to do versus the other person's like, okay, well, look, I'm on a journey here and I'm going inside this and then I'll see what happens, right? And I think this is kind of um, um, where a lot of this kind of gets into this whole how it's almost like a, a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? That like a lot of times the way we frame the world also becomes a bit of the world that we actually experience in, in the end. Mm. Yeah, I, I freaking love that story. That's, it's so powerful. Um, and perhaps as a, as a follow-up, are, are there any other barriers that you see to serendipity or, or perhaps like enemies to serendipity flowing naturally? I've observed a lot of them in myself, actually, in terms of, you know, something, first of all, like that I completely underestimated how probable the unexpected is, right? So, so how mm. probable it is that something improbable happens. <laughs> like, it, it, it's, it's extremely improbable that my laptop falls down now. It's extremely improbable that there's an earthquake happening where you are. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's extremely improbable that you know xyz but when you add up all these extremely improbable things it becomes quite probable that something happens right mm -hmm. that's unexpected and so um I, I think like that's something where um i had to 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 really train myself in understanding even if i try to ignore a lot of the unexpected it does happen all the time and i might as well be prepared for it so now for example like i mean you know it, it, like it's it's simple things like in a presentation like I, I try to have a joke for when something falls down because I know I have erratic hand movements. So at some point something will fall down. I don't know what it will be, but I know it will happen, right? And so it's kind of these kind of things where it's just um, expect the unexpected type um, and, and that we underestimate this. Another one is definitely around that, that we, we, we try to make sense out of the world in a very kind of 
linear way and, and, and assume that we had a lot of control. And, you know, so it's, it's almost like this kind of step-by-step, -step, you know, you have a plan. It's similar to how you, um, when you think about your career, right? You might think, oh, I do this, then I do this, then I do this. But then, you know, life happens. And like, it's like a squibble that kind of like squibbles around. Mm -hmm. But then again, like when you sit down and you tell your next employer about, oh, I did this. And then I moved into X, Y, that area because of this. You again, tell it as if it was step-by-step. -step. And so mm -hmm. in a way, we're all lying a little bit to each other by making stories much more linear and step-by-step -step than they actually are. And the problem, of course, is that we don't necessarily always learn from each other that much, especially from hero stories, because hero stories a lot of times leave out these kind of things that maybe weren't really driven by the person, but they came completely unexpected. And I think one of the hopes I have with this book actually is to say, if we turn serendipity and the unexpected from something that seems like something that's passive and that seems like a loss of control of someone and almost like a weakness to an active idea of, hey, you cultivated serendipity, that's great. Mm. You're actually in control. Mm. Then actually we legitimize what really happens in life. And I think that to me, you know, it, it makes us all a bit more honest. And I think it also makes us a bit more joyful about how life really happens versus how everyone tells us it is, but actually it isn't. Yeah, yeah. And the, I, I think I remember there was an image in your book where there was like a fun diagram where you, exactly as you just said, you drew a straight line for the original plan, followed by this chaotic squiggle of the actual experience, followed by the straight line of the official story. And so could you tell me about some of the, the squiggles that happened in the journey of writing and researching this book? Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm so many. But um, I mean, first of all, um, so Leif Sharp, my um, wonderful colleague in one of my research projects, um, she is the wonderful mastermind behind this this visual, which is which is a beautiful visual. Um, highly recommended uh, to check out her work as well. Around she does a lot of work around ideas flow, and um, one of the things that in in my own life. Um, oh yeah, and by the way, so that work we did together, we worked a lot with um, with larger companies and tried to figure out how do idea flows really happen. And so ideas flows in companies actually are much more like the squirrel, right? Even though we might then have people present as if they had it all planned out. Um, and so it's, it's kind of, again, like giving an active language in, in that. But in, in my own journey, I mean, I've, 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 um, I remember the first book I wanted to write actually around, yeah, three and a half years ago, I think. I mean, don't, don't I mean, uh, you know, it, it, time, time is, is, is so relative at the moment that I'm not sure it was exactly three years, but something around that, that, those lines. And I remember I was, I, I first wanted to write a book about um, kind of impact organizations and like integrating profit and purpose, because that was a topic that I was super excited about. And Serendipity played a little role in it, but the most important kind of the core focus was really on what is the future of organizations and X, Y, Z. And I remember I was on holidays and, and I, you know, I pitched that idea to uh, good friends of mine who, who are, um, who know about books and things and and I would be like hey great like so this is the book idea about profit and purpose and so on so and you know the, the first question uh, was so Christian that's interesting do you have other ideas as well and uh, and so and so um, and so uh, and so um, and so it was pretty clear to me that um in terms of a broader audience, I could probably forget about that book um, actually working. And so, um, and so, and so, I was like, okay, look, like the first thing that came to mind was serendipity when they asked that. And so, I spent that whole evening writing down everything that I had done over the last years 
um, over the last decade, as I told you, like it has been such a guiding force. It has been such a philosophy of my life. And I was like, wow, like how could I not realize that this is actually what I'm most excited about? Um, mm -hmm. I've always been rationally excited about profit and purpose and how we can do this. But like intuitively, the way I operate and my philosophy of life is around cultivating serendipity. And so it's, it's kind of um, so that night was all about, you know, pulling all that research together that somehow was about purpose and impact, but actually serendipity played a big role. Um, and then kind of linking everything that I had done around serendipity and putting it all all in. And then I think that's been the journey of the last years now to to in a way look at my work differently again and say, what of these things was around serendipity and, and what makes sense in that sense, mm -hmm. but also then doing a lot of interviews and other things around it. And I think actually almost every conversation, I mean, I've done dozens and dozens of conversations um, for, for the book and almost every conversation led me a little bit into redefining the whole, like in terms of, to give you an example, I, I went to the publisher at some point um, with like an almost finished manuscript and I was like, hey, great, this is the manuscript. And they were like, hey, look, this, this is nice. This, we like it. Uh, but we need more love stories. Um, and I was like, well, I'm not sure if I, as a kind of 30-ish year old guy who's single is the perfect person to ask about like love stories. I'm just not <laughs> sure if this is my area of expertise. And, um, and they were like, no, but like, like see if you can find some love stories. And so right after that, I had a, um, I had a meeting with a, an ex-partner of mine. And we had together for a couple of, we had been together for a couple of years. We're very close friends now. And, you know, we, we had that coffee scheduled and it was all about just catching up. And um, I, I asked her, because she's such a beautiful mind, and I asked her, so, so hey, Sophie, do you know of any kind of like, you know, serendipity, uh, sorry, of, of any love stories around serendipity? And she was like, well, our story. And I was like, what do you mean our story? Like, we're not together anymore. Uh, and she was like, well, but look, like we met serendipitously. We met in the Starbucks, right? We kind of somehow connected. Uh, you know, watching each other's laptops when the other one was on the toilet and like then kind of somehow got into a conversation, saw that there were overlaps and, and somehow kind of, you know, it emerged out of that. Um, so it was serendipitous. Um, but then, you know, we, we put each other on beautiful tracks, like we introduced each other to wonderful people. We gave each other a lot of emotional stability and, and so on. And so in a way, we both made each other like, you know, we helped each other become the person we are today. And so it, to me, that was mm -hmm. this kind of point where I was like, wow, like, maybe I have to rethink my definition of success in a couple of areas. And like mm. that I took for granted that in areas such as love, success would mean you're still together with the person. Mm. But, you know, maybe it's not that. Maybe it is that for, for some reason at some point you were together and you, you put each other on some kind of path, good or bad, and, and in this case, good. Um, and then, you know, now, now you're on to another life. And, and I think that kind of really, I had a lot of these kind of occurrences where if I would tell the story you know, I could, you could tell the same book or you could write the same book in so many different ways now in terms of more linearly, more squiggly and so on. And I think it, it, there has been a lot of squiggly in it, definitely. That's such a great story. And um, I love the, the point that you made about kind of pitching the, the rational story that you wanted to write and then the kind of the deeper, more intuitive story that was, that was underneath it. And something that I'm definitely curious about is the connection between our intuition and serendipity. And I think in my experience, the, the biggest moments of serendipity have come from following my intuition without fully knowing why or where it will lead to. And it, it's almost felt like stepping into this kind of slipstream. So I, I guess in, in your experience, to what extent is the process of amplifying serendipity one of tuning into your, your own intuition? 
that's an interesting question, especially because, I mean, in my research, but also for myself, I've seen that a lot of times we need to learn to trust the gut, right? I mean, I, I had periods where I didn't trust my gut at all. And usually these were the kind of decisions, especially in unexpected situations, that nowadays, I mean, I'm not a person who regrets decisions, mm -hmm. but I do have moments where I'm like, yeah, I wouldn't make this decision again. Mm -hmm. And usually these were decisions where my head would say one thing or my advisors or people who, you know, would me, give me rational facts would, would give me one thing, but then my gut would say, nah, but it doesn't feel right. And, and you know, and I, when I was younger, I didn't trust the gut that much because I trusted maybe, uh, you know, like the advice of a couple of people a bit more or, or, or other things. And one of the things I, I really learned that goes into exactly your direction is that the, the decisions, being that serendipitous or in general, um, that, that I'm happiest about nowadays, they were usually driven by kind of an informed gut feeling, no? like a, a kind of almost like getting as much information as possible, um, um, you know, sleeping over things, trying to X, Y, Z, like, you know, like, like yeah, do, do everything one can to, to have the brain and the gut in a way that they know of everything that could be known, but at the same time then saying my subconscious probably knows better sometimes than my conscience and, and, mm -hmm. or my, my, my head. And, and, and I think that's kind of how nowadays, um, you know, when, um, so for example, you know, even when you think about, you can think about this, right? In terms of like love, I had, uh, you know, I did this Bumble thing a couple of, of months ago uh, about like, you know, meeting people and stuff. And, mm -hmm. and you know, when you, when, you, when you have kind of intuitions about things and, I really learned now to trust them. If I feel this doesn't feel right to meet this or to do this or X, Y, Z, nowadays I trust it usually. And sometimes I'm like, well, now I want to double check if actually this is trustable. So I still go. And then I'm like, yeah, no, the gut was right. <laughs> and so it's, you know, and so it's kind of these type of things where um, also testing sometimes if that is right. But to your point, like I think in the bigger scheme of things, um, there's a lot of kind of work actually around the role of intuition in serendipity and how important a role intuition has in terms of sensing and and really kind of in a way um, making yeah making broader sense out of things, but also then more broadly um, the question of how we can essentially give our subconscious more to work with, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you, you all, we all know these kind of moments, right? This kind of eureka moment in the shower, like or when we wake up at two o'clock at night and we think, oh, that was just like this one moment. No, it was your subconscious that it's been working for a long time trying to connect dots. And then at that point, it connected the dots for you, but it still was a process. And so it's almost like giving it also a little bit of space to do that. So I think um, that's what I've learned about my gut feeling things that like almost distilling, what is it in the gut now? Is it just a bit of fear of something and I shouldn't act on it versus is it really something that is driven by, 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 um, by, by some kind of genuine idea of, of what could make sense. And so I feel giving it time, sleeping over it, and these kind of things have, have really helped with that kind of more mature intuition feeling versus just mm. kind of like, you know, impulse. Yeah, that's, that's great. And on the thread of making decisions, I, I really appreciated what you wrote about the, the value of holding multiple and potentially conflicting ideas in your head. And one way I sometimes do this is, is almost by creating internal characters and then assigning each one with a different kind of model or a different idea. And then usually through some kind of journaling as a way of creating dialogue between their perspectives. But it's, it's inherently hard and it's really kind of against our natural instincts. So I'm curious, what are some of the ways that you have deconditioned yourself to, to being open to holding more or multiple points of view at once? 
Yeah, that's that's a great point. Especially, I mean, I've always been a big fan of, uh, you know, this. Um, I, like, I do a lot of um, supervision of of of, of theses, sort of like research papers, and I've always found it fascinating. You know, when you, um, I mean, I would never want to put different situations in different boxes or people into different boxes, but there's a certain pattern. Like, and the pattern is you have um, a lot of students who come in and they're like, I know exactly what I want to do. I have this one literature, I have this one focus, I have this one perspective, this one thing, and I want to run with this. And I'm like, great, like do it. And so usually they, you know, they deliver on time. They are like extremely kind of sure of what they want to do. They have figured it out and boom. And they will usually do some good work, right? They will be like kind of a, a relatively okay, kind of, you know, upper merit, lower distinction type. Um, uh, or like, you know, the, the A kind of A minus type um, um, or, or, or kind of uh, um, um, result versus like the, the the really interesting ones come in and they're like, oh my God, like I read into this literature and this literature and then I, I discovered this and then now I, I saw this and like, you know, it's just like, I mean, I'm not really sure what to do about this and X, Y, Z. And that friction, that kind of, that that creative tension that actually leads them to real originality. Right? That leads mm -hmm. them to the really interesting ideas and to really creating something new out of it rather than just kind of following a certain beaten beaten path. And so mm -hmm. um, I've, I've, I've always found that fascinating because I feel um, as, as, as students, um, uh, that's just one example, but I feel we try to do that in every area, that we, we try to have one hypothesis or one kind of belief um, that makes us then feel safer and makes us feel we know you know, how we can go about this, but actually, you know, the really interesting things obviously come out of that kind of creative friction. And, and um, I think there's even this kind of, I don't know who said it, but this whole idea of that, that real intelligence, like the sign of a real intelligence person is to hold conflicting ideas in your head and be okay with it. Right. Mm -hmm. So that, that, that um, and, and it was this kind of, um, I think Ronald Reagan said that to his economic advisor, right? Like he wanted to cut his arm because the economic advisor would always say, well, on the one hand, on the other hand, and it's kind of this thing where, yeah, ideally I would want to give you one answer, but the world is complex and there is a lot of times not this one answer, but there's just different perspectives. And I love what you said about that, that you create these different characters because I think um, it's so helpful, right? I mean, I've seen that with myself. Um, I always ask myself these kind of things when I'm going through a tough period, for example, I'm always asking myself, what would I advise someone else now if I take myself out of myself? Right? Mm, because yeah, that's I'm so question. much harsher on myself than I'm on others. <laughs> I'm so much kind of um, so much so much more anxious when I'm in periods where if a friend would go through it, I would be like, what? Like this? Like no problem? <laughs> like X Y Z? And so it's kind of these things where you know, like this perspective taking, um, um, in a way in a funny way, right? This perspective taking both makes it more complex life, but also in a way it, it can also reduce anxiety because we also maybe get less harsh on that there is one truth or one, mm. one feeling or one thing or, or one, 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 uh, one reality almost. And, and, and I think that's kind of the most beautiful thing in life, no? that at the end of the day, everything is socially constructed anyway. So it's really about how we construct it in our heads and then make sense out of it and hopefully not get too anxious about it. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's really beautifully articulated. And what comes up for me is is the kind of deep discomfort that we feel as humans when we have to sit with uncertainty and how much we kind of want to squirm and, and kind of es escape that feeling. But as you say, that that tension is usually where the breakthroughs occur. And, and also, I would imagine where a lot of the the noticing of serendipity happens as well. 
when we're kind of forced to not just like grasp hold of this this solid raft of, of an idea or an opinion or an answer and just kind of sit in that like sit in that vague ambiguity and that and that unknowingness which is is a really hard lesson to learn particularly as we've all been conditioned as children to just be rewarded for giving correct answers in in exams and things like that so I, I think in many ways it feels like a like an unlearning process that many of us have to go through and um this 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 also tied it ties quite nicely for me to there was there was a story that you shared where you said that um there was a man who, who said the more he got to know himself the more he began to trust that he was ready for serendipity and i thought that was a really interesting statement and could you could you unpack it a little and maybe why you feel like there's a connection between the self-awareness and serendipity yeah i mean so this man he's a wonderful um i met him in a restaurant in london and and um, we had a wonderful conversation where he essentially, you know, I asked him how much serendipity do you have in your life? And, and he essentially said, well, um, nothing up until I was 25 or something and, and now all the time. And, and I was like, well, what changed? And, and his point was what changed was that I, I feel, I feel I can trust my gut now. I can, I feel worthy enough of the opportunity. And, and mm-hmm. I think to me, you know, this is, this is both about self-awareness, but also even more so about, about um, the feeling of self-worth, right? Because I feel a lot of us, you know, we might have, you know, imposter syndrome or um, especially maybe if we grew up in like a more challenging environment, we might feel we're not deserving of opportunity in the sense of that, you know, if, if someone kind of like, you know, I feel like one of the worst things in the world is this kind of entitlement that a lot of people have who were grown and born into particular environments and um, in, 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 and then almost like kind of others who would deserve that opportunity, but but because because there's kind of like they, they, they had a, a tough upbringing, there's almost this kind of sense of, um, you know, oh, um, um, we're not supposed to X, Y, Z. And I, I remember I had a wonderful conversation um, with a student uh, of mine once who, uh, you know, who, he grew up in a in a working uh, class context, and um, and his 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 uh, the message he got was always no, but but you're not supposed to be at university. Like people like us uh, are to are supposed to do X Y Z, and so he had to almost um, unlearn to say no. But like I feel I want to see if there's a way to get out of this, and I think I've always been very cautious about like thinking about this in in terms of I think like every context has like you know, there's there's always beauty in every context. In the sense of, I think everyone who who who, um, who raises a child or who, um, who who takes on responsibility, there's always things that are done well and things that are not done well. Um, but I think also there are certain things that certain contexts do with us. And I think that that if you're uh, growing up in a family that focused on focusing on your self worth, focusing on you can do everything that you want to do, focusing on you know this kind of idea of potentiality. You go out in the world and you have a conversation with someone who tells you about an opportunity and you're like, yeah, of course, like I'm in. Versus like if, if you grew up in a context that maybe was um, um, more hesitant towards um, that, that, that opportunities come to, 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 to that, um, then, then I think um, that, that kind of lack of worthiness um, might be less so there. And, and I don't think it's a socioeconomic question as much as it is a question of, of, of how we raise our kids. And I think... As, as someone who um, you know has been contemplating more and more um, to you know um, you know at some point get into the you know actually um, 
<laughs> that sounds horrible. I, I take it back immediately, but pr being productive on that front as well in terms of kids. <laughs> <laughs> but I take that back. I, I would say, I would say, uh, <laughs> who, who, who also is contemplating having, you know. And that's your Bumble profile. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, like bringing kids into the world that, that are, that feel worthy. And I feel that mm. is one of the biggest gifts that I would like to instill in my kids to say, mm. you're worthy of what comes your way because a lot of times we might see an opportunity, but we might not feel ready for it. We might not feel worthy of it. Um, and yes, that's partly related to self-awareness, but also related to even if I'm not yet there, you know, it's, it's really that growth mindset thing, right? Like in terms of, but I could maybe be there. And so it's really kind of that, that feeling um, that, that I feel is very related to, to that. Mm. Yeah, that's that's beautiful. And um, what what comes to mind for me, and this is maybe a bit of a tangent, but I've been reading some of the the work and the studies of Dr. Joe Dispenza, and he talks about setting intentions and then releasing control of them whilst we're in these these very high brainwave states of, of theta and gamma consciousness, almost as a means of priming ourselves. And I'm I'm curious if you think there are certain brainwave states that are more conducive to the serendipity unfolding or, or maybe for manifesting some of our intentions and desires in ways that we couldn't have anticipated. So John, the last two sentences, somehow my line was a little bit, would you mind just repeating the, the, the context? Um, sure, yeah. So I was just, yeah. just referring to some of the work by Joe Dispenza and how he, he's been studying people who set intentions for their for their desires whilst in very high states of meditation in like theta and gamma consciousness and i guess i'm curious if there are certain brainwave states that you feel like are more conducive to serendipity or for for kind of manifesting our desires in ways that we we wouldn't have initially anticipated yeah that's a super interesting question i think it's one of these questions where the the quote unquote scientist in me is like, uh, you know, there, there, it's almost like there's, there's something I spiritually look at. And then there's something that I, that I, that I feel, you know, there's, there's neuroscience around there's, 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 there's quantum physics, right? There's mm -hmm. all these different areas that could, that could help us trying to understand how, how these kind of things could almost, um, how do you call it? Manifest. Right. Right. Um, and, and I think um, I've, 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 you know, I, I guess I would answer this question very differently in different contexts, if that makes sense, in terms of mm -hmm. that I think I've seen things work in practice. Um, and at the same time, the researchers in me, the researcher in me is like, well, but maybe you want to keep first on the safe track of, of saying what, 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 I, um, what I've actually, what we can actually show evidence for. And so I think what I've certainly seen is that people, um, you know, when they um, set their intentions, when they, Kind of try to manifest something that in a way a lot of times it's, it's almost like the universe conspires right, right. Um, and and you know it might um, kind of show itself in the kind of energy they have and the kind of um, the, the clarity they have that other people actually can help them connect with it um, mm -hmm. the kind of you know I'm, I'm sure there's 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 really interesting work um, again in, in quantum physics and, and other areas um, I've been a bit hesitant to um, um, how to say um, I had this really interesting conversation one with this uh, reviewer person uh, who was reviewing the book and they were like, um, 
well, what of, what of this is pseudoscience versus real science when you think about like spirituality and waves and, and things and, and, mm. and you know, so, so I've become cautious of what, um, what, um, what we, what we can know versus what we, what we could know, mm. um, if we, if we had better ways of measuring it. But I think, um, what I found fascinating is seeing a lot of times how that actually, um, how people have manifested things and that I think we're probably at the beginning of how we can measure this in terms of if it's energy, if it's if it's other kind of you know wavic type um, uh, modalities, um, but I've certainly seen it, and I've I've also you know maybe linking this to to also the spiritual side, um, I've 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 found it fascinating how you know in those traditions particularly that emphasize um, kind of setting intentions or you know we talked earlier about meditation that you know it might a lot of times not necessarily only be the direct intention, right? It might also just be what it does with us, right? Like when mm. I'm in a relaxed energetic state, there mm. are studies that show that when you are in a relaxed state, serendipity is more likely. And mm. so it might not necessarily be the intention itself, but it might mm. be that the intention gave you the relaxedness that mm. now made it more possible that it can happen. And so, you know, so I feel like there's like, I'm not sure I could say there's exactly one thing that I believe or not believe could be true, but, but I do feel there's, there's a lot of kind of almost beautiful side effects also that, that happen a lot in, in that respect. Mm, yeah. I, and I completely kind of share your, your intuitions there as well. And the thing that I, I really appreciate about that process is, is once you kind of drop that intention into whatever state of consciousness you're in, the, the suggestion or the idea is then to kind of release control of how it happens. And I feel like in releasing control, we're almost, opening up the floodgates to serendipity and to ways for that to occur that we couldn't have previously have conceived of. Um, so that's kind of how I, how I view the process. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and that's actually, I mean, when you think about it in terms of how, what we talked about earlier in terms of having the sense of direction and at the same time uh, being able to react to the unexpected, you're completely right. That is so much about being okay with that, something doesn't necessarily quote unquote go exactly like plan, mm. but actually that that is not only okay, but that actually that's, that, that is the only way a lot of times that something can work out. And I think, so Hubert Jolie said that beautifully, um, like the, the, the gentleman who was running Best Buy, he, he has this kind of, um, he had this conversation with a monk and you know, the monk essentially, the whole conversation was around this idea that in a way we always, like if we look at the world as, there's my exact plan. And if this exact plan doesn't work out, it's a problem. And the person who's, who's, who's to blame for this, that person now is the problem. It's a very harsh way of looking at the world, right? Because we're mm. essentially we're creating a lot of things, a lot of tension, X, Y, Z. But once we accept that kind of imperfection as a way of life, that like not always everything will go our way, um, then actually, you know, we see in every imperfection, again, something beautiful that can come out of it. Mm. And I think, I mean, there's... Um, you know, if you think about, um, so one, one dear friend of mine, uh, Danielle, he, she had this, you know, um, situation where she was working with this perfectionist boss and, you know, he kind of really, you know, um, put all this kind of, I mean, fear probably, right? Like what is perfectionism? Perfectionism is, is basically partly on deep seated fear, right? In terms of fear of failure, fear of whatever it is. And, 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 and a lot of times, like other people are the channel for that. And, and so I remember how Danielle, like she, she, you know, this boss was extremely angry on her for like something small that went wrong and it wasn't even her fault. Um, but like he kind of 
injected so much negative energy um, that, you know, she, she kind of walked outside the door and, and she was like, she was completely done, right? And she was just sitting at the train station and like, oh my God, like life is over. And she runs into this guy who works for another uh, competing company in, or a competing organization in the, in the city. And, you know, they get talking and, and he's like, oh, hey, by the way, like um, I'm looking for a person doing X, Y, Z. Do you know someone by any chance? And, you know, um, by end of next week, she had the interview and, and, and two weeks later she had the job. Of course, that's kind of like, you know, I mean, that's very kind of long story short type uh, um, example. But the point here is that um, th that kind of sense of like imperfection it introduces so, or perfection. It, int it introduces so much kind of negative tension, mm. um, and 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 in a way, Danielle still allowed herself to still be a little bit open, um, even though in that situation she she was she was um, potentially, uh, you know, really um, brought down by it. And so I think that to me also, I've seen that in, in a lot of other contexts as well. That um, to your point, once you release it a little bit, that's where where opportunity shows. Mm. That's great, and I've I've just um I've just noticed the time, and I want to be conscious of of our time. So I have a few rapid fire questions before we wrap up, and your your answers don't necessarily have to be rapid. Um, the first question is, what is the one serendipity that you're most grateful for in your life? That's a great question. That's a great question. You probably need to give me two minutes, then you cut these two minutes and <laughs> we pretend that I directly have the answer. That is totally fine. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, it's a great question because I feel there's so much in my life I'm deeply grateful for. I mean, even, you know, how that whole journey turned out from, you know, what we talked about, the death, uh, death life journey. I feel there's a lot of kind of serendipity in that in my own personal journey. Um, but also then, you know, having met people like Sophie and others, um, I feel like most of my, you know, um, partners that I've met in my life, uh, I met coincidentally. I started reflecting now with, um, uh, I like that you said no rapid fire answer because obviously this is a longer winded answer. But um, the uh, most of the um, friends, you know, I, I started reflecting a couple of days ago with a good friend of mine and we realized, yeah, like we, we met serendipitously because somehow someone canceled on me and then we got talking and then somehow... You know that's how our friendship evolved, and so I feel like it's it's like most of the good friends, or many of the good friends I have, many of the um, love interests in my life um, came very serendipitously. Um, yeah, so I think that's probably where it plays the most role. But also all my companies that I've been involved in, Sandbox was completely serendipitous. Leaders on Purpose was completely serendipitous. So yeah, I mean, you know, I think the reason I have difficulty answering is because most of the big things in my life came completely serendipitous and i'm trying to weigh which one of them is most important but i think they are all really important mm. yeah wow wow um okay second question what is one homework assignment that you might give to uh someone listening to build the muscle of serendipity in their own life starting a serendipity journal i think it's it's really saying you know, starting with simple things like, you know, doing three or four practices, you know, it could be asking questions differently rather than, you know, asking, what do you do? Asking something like, what are you most interested in at the moment? Um, what's your state of mind? Whatever it is, like, um, or, you know, setting hooks or other other kind of exercises that, 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 um, that, that one can do and really kind of, in a way, reflecting on those exercises, writing down how they help one maybe open up the mind. 
um, reflecting on serendipitous encounters. And I think the, the main thing here is really to um, get into the modus of saying, wow, like once I become aware of serendipity in my life, and even if I don't have a lot of serendipity at the moment, if I try a couple of these things and have more serendipity, if I, if I note them down, I make it more transparent. And then essentially it is really that kind of self-fulfilling like prophecy almost that then serendipity starts to happen all the time. And so it's really um, um, starting with a journal can be super helpful to just make it a present conscious thing that reminds us to really kind of keep that deep, curious, open-minded kind of day-to-day um, -day mind. Mm, love it. Um, this is a question from my friend David Ryan on Twitter, and he asked, what is or what stuck with you as a specific practice from engaging more with serendipity whilst researching this book? Particular practice whilst researching the book? That's an interesting question because I think because I'm someone who has been extremely excited about serendipity, one of my core challenges has always been to how not be, be distracted by serendipity. <laughs> you know, how to actually learn how to filter. Yeah. Um, and so I think one of the things that has helped me a lot in writing the book, but also previously in writing papers, like doing creative work or conceptual work, um, is this idea of, that Paul Graham uh, had once around maker versus manager schedule. Mm -hmm. And really this idea of saying, if I'm kind of making something, then I need uninterrupted time. Like I need to be in execution mood. I need to, like, you know, I, for example, I usually... Um, from 8 to 12 or so in the morning, I try to block that as my time where I work on something and I used to work on the book. And that is time where I don't want any serendipity to happen. I just want to be in my room and I want to be focused because that is where I need to get stuff done. Mm -hmm. And then the afternoons, I can be really open to it because I know that the stuff already got done that I needed to get done. And that's kind of more like the kind of the manager schedule in terms of meeting, 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 call, call, call. Um, but essentially the core idea there is that one of the mistakes I did, for example, in the early days of um, of the community that, that I was involved in around like 11 years ago um, was to, to um, you know, take a lot of Skype calls with people because it was a global community. And so um, you would always be, you know, working for half an hour on something then have a quick phone call or a quick coffee and then go back to it. And I realized that real conceptual work doesn't get done that way. And so really kind of um, learn to, and especially when you have conversations where like, oh my God, great opportunity coming out of it. Fantastic. Let's work on this. And then my mind would directly go to this, right? Versus saying, no, 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 no. Protect yourself, Christian. Four hours in the morning, that is just your maker time. Mm -hmm. And then the rest is, is the rest of it. And, and again, I mean, I, I'm, I'm aware that this, this is a certain luxury of, of how you can control your time. But I think even if, if one can't control their time during, during the day, I mean, there's always a Saturday or something you can control, right? And so it's really, um, I think, um, in a way, um, allowing for that incubation time, that kind of conceptual maker time um, being super important. Mm. Awesome. And I, I thought it'd be fun to turn a couple of your own questions around on you. So which person has had the greatest influence on your life? feel a lot of people had had influences in very different ways i mean i i think i've certainly when i think i mean the two people certainly um i mean you know it's, it's uh, I, I i i think my my mom had this kind of deeply empathic emotional sensing side and i think i, I took a lot from this and then my dad had this kind of very rational 
um, academic, um, thoughtful side. And I think I, I took some of this, but also then um, I, I think there's also, I see in both, for example, um, you know, also some of the things that I feel the older I get, the also the more I see patterns where I'm like, yeah, maybe I, 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 I should let go of some of these patterns. So I think mm-hmm. both the good and the bad I see in, in myself in terms of which patterns I should keep versus which patterns I, I should let go of. Um, so I think certainly my parents in the sense of that they've, they've done all the things that I would, that I would want to, you know, kind of give to my kids in terms of that instilling that sense of worthiness and that sense of kind of um, um, feeling that you're, that you, that you can't really, you can't really fail in the sense of you can, you can feel that you fail, but actually there's always some way out. And I think that to me was always important as a kind of, um, kind of big thing. But I think in general, in terms of people that people might, might know, I mean, I've always been extremely inspired by the Viktor Frankl types in terms of how do you really reframe moments of tragedy and, and turn them into, into, into moments of learning and, 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 and gratitude. And so I think, um, you know, that's the whole kind of every, everyone from Brini Brown to, um, to Viktor Frankl is really in that where I've, I've read um, a lot of things. But I think in terms of the personal touch, it's, it's really definitely been my parents. Mm. And that's a, that's a nice segue to the last question, which is, what does success mean to you? I mean, believe me, this is the kind of question where I would answer that very differently, you know, literally every two weeks in terms <laughs> of... Uh, I feel like I'm I'm redefining the question constantly. I think mm. I've I've you know I've I've had a period um, where um, success to me would be along the lines of what we talked about earlier. That um, you know if if life would be over now, it would have like you know maybe something like the book would have changed a lot of minds and um, it would have made a lot of brought a lot of joy to the world. Um, but then you know um, I'm sure when I'll be a father in a couple of years like I would define it as having nourished a few or having been part of like nourishing a wonderful family um so I feel like it's kind of um it's been it's been it's been changing depending on the focus that that I've had in my life but I think a, a constant has been around that idea of what is something that is meaningful and that is lasting because I feel you know I've, I've never for some for some reason I've never had like a deeper longing for I don't know. I've seen too many people who got really depressed because they had like a lot of money or so like so many people who, who got depressed because they, and, and in the sense of like depressed, because, you know, if, if you, if you're very maturely focused, a lot of times you might feel, try to fill a void. Right. And so mm-hmm. I, I think like I've, I've, I've been in a long journey of trying to figure out um, how, what are, what are the areas that, that try to fill if there is a potential void and, and somehow, yeah, successes, to me, never been around. Um, I don't know. If you look at my apartment, like it's it's people people always joke it looks relatively Spartanic because it's almost like I I feel like the biggest success in New York, for example, is like having wonderful people around. I feel and, and having mm. wonderful friends around. Um, everything else, again, there's the impact bit, but um, yeah, I think you know it's kind of it, it reminds me of this um, um, this beautiful. I think it was in the Guardian or somewhere. This kind of um, nurses that shared what people say are their their deathbed regrets, and mm-hmm. nobody ever said I regret that I didn't make more money on this or something. And they usually talk about I regret that I didn't reconnect with my family, or I regret that I don't reconnect with my friends or something like that. And so I think um, that to me really, 
I think, you know, when I would define my core values, I think meaningful, meaningful uh, relations or connection is, is the number one. Mm. Okay, this has been an absolute pleasure. Um, where can listeners learn more about your work and, and your podcast and all the things that you're up to in the world? That's on Twitter, which is uh, Chris Serendip. So um, two words in one, Chris Serendip. And then uh, there's a homepage for the book, which is www.theserendipitymindset.com, all in one word, uh, or just serendipitymindset.com. And yeah, and I, I'd obviously be delighted to connect. I'm, I'm a big fan of, you know, if maybe someone says, oh my God, such a coincidence. I was just working on XYZ and this could really relate to what, what you're working on. Please do reach out um, and yeah, would be delighted to connect. Amazing. And I'd like to close with uh, this Rilke line. Um, and the line is, try to love the questions themselves and live them now. Perhaps you will then gradually, without noticing it, live your way into the answer. And so with that in mind, what is the question that you're living yourself right now? And what question might you leave our listeners with? It's a great question. At the moment, probably a lot around how can we use all of the things we just talked about to tackle like the really big, big, big question that's going on at the moment, I think, and, and that has been going on for the last decades, of course, um, which is societal inequality. And how can we, in a way, use serendipity as a, as a social leveler? And, and can we build that into structures, into education systems? Can we build that into, um, into, into social systems where we allow people to have more potentiality in their life, especially when they come from, um, you know, backgrounds being that um, backgrounds where they were racially discriminated, where they were income discriminated, where they were, um, you know, like where they didn't have the same starting base than others. Like how can we um, leverage the magic of serendipity for that on a real systemic level? Because I think a lot of the, the work um, has been on the individual level, but I think that systemic level, um, that, that is really a big question of how we translate that into that. Mm, so powerful. Thank you. Thank you so much for this. This has been such a pleasure. Likewise, thank you so much. And thank you for the wonderful questions. I mean, uh, you definitely do justice to the uh, curious uh, tech. <laughs> thank you. That's, that's kind of you to say. Um, all right, we will wrap the show with that. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. It would mean a lot to me if you could take a few seconds to open up your podcast app and give Curious Humans a shiny five-star rating. This not only helps more people to find it, but it will help me to get more awesome guests in the future. And if you're not already subscribed, then the Curious Humans newsletter is where I share monthly morsels of interestingness and podcast updates. You can sign up for that at johnny.life. That's J-O-N-N-Y dot life.